you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. On, uh, on first hearing, the story from Exodus might sound a bit quaint, if not maybe even a little bit myth-like. Moses has asked to see the glory of God, to look upon the holiness of God with his very eyes. This, of course, has been the, the challenge all along for the freed Hebrew slaves. They want to see this God that Moses has been telling about. They want to be able to lay hold of this God in some tangible way, just like the other nations did with their graven images and carved statues. Now Moses, who up to this point had been pretty darn good about resisting the the need or the temptation to see God, makes the request. The Lord said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name the Lord Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And so Moses is tucked into the cleft of a rock, and his eyes are covered by the divine hand. As God passes by, the hand is lifted from Moses' face. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You can almost picture it, right? I mean, there's Moses tucked into the cleft, and the hand of God covering his face and racing by. And as he goes by, releases the hand, and Moses looks and gets a glimpse of the divine shoulder blades. If it sounds a little irreverent, to put it that way, or, or comic, Maybe it's because it is. Hebrews are remarkably earthy language. And the Old Testament is actually full of kind of these plays on words, ironies, and uh, sort of doublespeak. So, the Jewish imagination that produced these texts and all that underlies them is clearly an ancient imagination, but it wasn't primitive or unsophisticated. What has been rolling forward since the story of Moses began with the encounter with the divine at the burning bush is a series of ongoing unveilings. The curtain keeps getting drawn back. A deepening of an understanding of what it means to be human in the presence of the holy. It's very much there in that first experience when Moses learns through the encounter with the burning bush that he is in the presence of the God of his ancestors, pointing to the past, but also in the presence of the one who is named Yahweh. That's an elusive word, an elusive Hebrew word that means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or even I will be there. So it's not simply the God of the past, the God of the ancestors, but the God of the unfolding future who will be there. 
That understanding deepens further with the giving of the commandments in the Sinai wilderness, which begin with the proclamation, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then goes on to say that you cannot carve this God into an image or an idol, nor can you take the divine name and turn it into a source of power by using it vainly. No. This God cannot be domesticated like that. Then as Exodus rolls forward, there's an even more definitive statement of the where of this God. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt in order that I might live among them. That's just a couple of chapters before tonight's reading. I will live among them, not, mind you, in any carved or graven form, yet still in their very midst. That's a highly sophisticated theological and spiritual move that this ancient people has made. These freed slaves struggled to make. Because it's a whole new thing that they are having unveiled for them. Then here in this text, there's this sense that for all of that, for all of the sophistication and the unveiling and the the nuance of this new thing, Moses still kind of needs a little bit more reassurance, or at least at that moment. The opening section that we read had Moses really pressing on God. You must go with us, he says. Which is something God has already promised in the text. And then he makes his request to look upon the glory of God with his eyes. To which the Lord says, Moses, Moses, Moses. You can't look upon my face. No one can look upon my face and be able to survive. I like to think that what the text is dealing with here is the struggle of a leader, a great leader, a transformational leader, who is struggling to shift the paradigm from the old fully into the new. Moses has done remarkably well up to this point. He even argues with God on behalf of the people when they fail. He's been able to adjust to this new spiritual paradigm in which his whole interaction has been with a holy presence, with an elusive name. But now, for whatever reason, at this moment, he seems to need to see something. Okay, buddy, the Lord seems to say, okay, I'll meet you halfway. But seriously, you do not want to look upon my face. Why not? There's a strong sense in the Hebrew Scriptures that the face of God would be so pure and so holy that to look upon it with our eyes would turn any one of us to dust. I think that's there in this text for sure. But I also think that there's another insight at work One that says, basically, were you to see the face of God, you would want to record it. You'd want to preserve it. And before you knew it, you'd have a bronze statue in hand that you'd be calling your God. 
You'd be dancing around it and the people would be offering it blood sacrifice and carrying it into battle as a source of power. And I am not going to let you, Moses, I'm not going to let your people fall into that trap. Now, with that kind of background, I want you to think about the gospel reading for a minute. With its famous line, Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I've heard that line used many times to try to say, See, the church has absolutely no business messing in matters political. Keep the spiritual matters of the church completely separate from the political matters of the state. In fact, about 25 years ago, I was chairing something for the diocese called the Public Social Responsibility Commission. The Public Social Responsibility Commission. And I was the chair. And we were looking at things like food justice and trying to work with Winnipeg Harvest at an earlier stage of its life and trying to, to do a little bit of advocacy in terms of homelessness and, and inadequate public housing and that sort of thing. And I received a letter from a local politician who happened also to be an Anglican, who in her parish had seen something that we had produced. And she wrote me a letter telling me that our commission was out of order because Jesus had said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God, the things that are God's, you have no business messing in matters political, period. It was a bit of a chilling letter for me to read as an enthusiastic young priest. But no, this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and Herodians is not actually about neatly dividing the spiritual from the social, the political but is actually a fairly powerful statement about politics and idolatry. It begins with a statement about how the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus, adding that they sent some of their people to him along with the Herodians. And that alone says that we're dealing with power and politics. The Herodians were those Jews who were supportive of King Herod and the sort of alliance he'd built with the Roman Empire. They were happy to be in a position of cooperation or even collusion with the empire. That was a perspective not shared by the Pharisees. Yet, here come the Pharisees and the Herodians together, their only commonality was a desire to discredit Jesus. That's a political move. And it's a political question that they ask him about the lawfulness of paying taxes to Caesar. Should we do it or not? Well, Jesus can see right through it. He's really very good at this business of debate and avoiding entrapment. And so in response, he asked them to show him the coin that they use for the tax. It's a denarius. Do you know what's on a denarius at that time? The face of the emperor, Tiberius Caesar. But more than just the image of his face, words 
words that read, Tiberius Caesar, August, so dignified, son of the divine Augustus. Tiberius Caesar, son of a Caesar who had been declared God, so a son of God. And on the back, the title, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. Now we're dealing with idolatry. A false claim to be a son of God and a high priest, and a very political and very violent idolatry at that. Give the debased stuff back to Caesar. His claims that he is a son of a god and a high priest, just give it back to him. Go ahead. He'll fade away. His empire will eventually collapse. Empires always do. Give him his money. Just give to God what is God's, which, given Jesus' thoroughly Jewish way of seeing the world meant give your everything to God. For God is the source of everything good and true and real and lasting. The empire is none of those things, and it will not last. Give Caesar his debased currency. Give what matters to the Lord your God. Now, this kind of a, a reading of the conflict and the, and the coin is very much in line with the earliest statement of belief, the earliest creed of the ancient church. A simple creed, three words, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, which always comes with a silent echo that says, and Caesar is not. And here's the tie back to that peculiar little story from Exodus in which Moses, tucked in the cleft of the rock, could look at the divine shoulder blades, not upon the face of God. In Jesus now, the very image of the unseen God, as Paul writes in Colossians, in Jesus they had finally looked upon the utterly unveiled face of God. And they'd seen a very human face. They'd seen one who was with them, as surely as had been promised in that ancient name, Yahweh, I will be there. And he was there. But his way of being there was so different from the violence and the power politics of Tiberius Caesar and his taxing coins. His way of being there was in servanthood, in restoration, in healing and in self-giving love. He is there through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, always there with us, always here with us through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Even in the darkest of days, his light, as Gord sang, had us sing, shines in the darkest of days, in his presence, no longer veiled, no longer hidden, in us, among us, close as our own breath, and often manifested one to another, through the love and the compassion and the servanthood and the restoration we offer one to another. 
In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.